one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of God for the people of God. So one of the things that I love to do with Abram, one of our new routines is every Saturday morning we will wake up and we will find the new episode of Sesame Street on HBO Go and we will devour it together. Kate and I have very different parenting techniques. Kate loves to keep the boys away from any screens or any sort of media. And this might be a lazy parenting move on my part, but I love to sit on the couch with Abram and just kind of snuggle him and watch uh, Sesame Street. Side note, once HBO took over Sesame Street, they kind of upped the ante. Guys, Jude, my son, everybody meet him. He is loud and boisterous and he doesn't feel that he needs to put on any sort of show because that's exactly who he is most of the day. Uh, we're, we're thankful for him. Kate's giving me the thumbs up. Okay, so here, here we go. But since HBO has taken over Sesame Street, they've done some really interesting things. I know they've like snuck this in to keep parents sane. Um, they do like these movie trailer type things where Cookie Monster is always one of the lead characters and they kind of do spoofs on Harry Potter. They do spoofs on Star Wars. They do all kinds of different things. But one thing that really surprised me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show some cards here, they did a spoof on Orange is the New Black, which is a pretty risque uh, cable show, but they called it Orange is the New Snack, and they had all of the characters from the show in puppet form. <laughs> I don't know, um, but Abe and I like watching Sesame Street, and it takes me back to uh, my youth when I grew up watching Sesame Street, and one of the bits that I remember uh, enjoying was one of these things. Remember that old song? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things is just not the same. Can you tell which thing is not like the other by the time I finish this song? Something like that, okay? You can see the examples there. Yes, the Batman and Robin one is, is not from Sesame Street, but I found it when you do a quick Google image search, and I thought, yeah, that, that works. I feel sad for that little kid. Okay. Um, one of these things is not like the other. When you think about the Bible, and we haven't really dipped into this in our study of the book of Mark, even over the last 45 weeks, as this is week 46 of our monster study in the book of Mark, we haven't really talked about the story or the stories of the synoptic gospels. Mark is one of three books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They each retell the story of Jesus and they're dubbed the Synoptic Gospels because they do so in a very similar way. They're very distinct from the book of John, which also tells the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. 
But these three in particular, they, they tell the story in very similar ways, but at times there's notable differences between these books as well. So when we dip in to look at Mark, sometimes the way that Mark is distinct from Matthew and Luke is a huge indicator as to what is the importance of this story. So tonight, we're going to kind of break the screen up. We're going to look at Matthew and Mark and Luke. And I know that's super nerdy, and if you've been around here, you know that's just kind of who I am. So we're going to, if you give me 12 minutes to just kind of get through some of this stuff, I think we'll find at the end that there's, there's legitimacy to it. But before we get there, I do want to preface all of this by saying, do not be afraid of your Bible. Do not be afraid to study it, to compare it, and to see potentially how things are different. If you compare Mark, especially versus Luke, if you compare Matthew and Mark versus Luke in this retelling, there's noticeable differences that I'll point out. Do not be afraid of the diversity within the Bible because within that there's beauty. Each of these authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were specific individuals writing for specific needs within a specific community, and the way that they tell this story shows evidence of that. So tonight I want to dip in and look at Mark, and I want to shine a light on Mark compared to Matthew and Luke. Just a little bit of biblical scholarship, most people will say that Mark is the first gospel that was written. And most people would then say that Matthew and Luke were using or dependent upon Mark. But there were times when Matthew and Luke showed differences between Mark, and that's where things get super interesting. So in our passage today, one very small difference between these passages is in Matthew and Luke, the person who comes to engage Jesus in conversation is described as a lawyer. Now that's not really a big deal because in Mark, he's described as one of the scribes, and this is the same type of office, even though the wording is different. So we have a religious leader who's coming to confront or question Jesus, and this is no different than the previous couple weeks where we've seen. When Jesus shows up in the temple and starts overthrowing the table saying, you guys have turned my father's house into a den of thieves, Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon the temple. Now, for 21st century Americans, we do not give a rip about Jesus pronouncing judgment on the temple, but for an ancient Jewish audience, this was massive. This was the, the locus point of all religion, if you will. And for Jesus to say, this thing that you guys have, have used to make yourselves big and to keep people out and to abuse certain folks, it's going to be judged. And it's, in fact, it's going to be destroyed. This was a massive claim that elicited from the religious leaders at the time a response to say, who do you think you are? And then we saw different groups just coming to question Jesus in very specific ways. What gives you the authority to make these claims? Or last week when we um, uh, saw the Sadducees confronting Jesus about this crazy resurrection story or a couple weeks ago when they were asking about should we pay taxes or should we not pay taxes, different religious leaders approaching Jesus to try to figure out who he is and what he's doing, and they were trying to trap him so that he would say the wrong thing at the right time so that the powers that be could kill him. So now in this story, we, we meet this scribe or this lawyer who could be described in this way uh, as a professional person who possessed the ability to write and interpret texts. 
And by New Testament times, it was associated, this job of being a scribe or being a, uh, a legal expert, it was associated with religious duties such as interpreting biblical texts and serving as guardians of the tradition. So in many ways, these were like the gatekeepers of all things Jewish religion at the time. They were the ones who could identify how to read and interpret these sacred texts. So one of the scribes or lawyers was showing up to Jesus and was going to give him a question with regard to the law. This was like this guy's bread and butter, and he wanted to see how Jesus would engage it or interact with it. Now, the biggest difference between Mark and Matthew and Luke, and if you hear nothing else from tonight's talk with regard to the differences between these these stories, in Matthew and Luke, the author makes it very clear that the goal of this person is to confront, to trap, to test sort of like in line with the other uh, people that have confronted Jesus, he wants, it seems, to get Jesus to say the wrong thing at the right time and to trap him. But what's interesting is in Mark, this legal expert or this scribe is very sympathetic to what Jesus is doing and saying. Mark says, one of the scribes came and heard them debating Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, this is in response to his engagement with the Sadducees last week, and basically the Sadducees painted this picture that they thought was a question that could not be answered. Jesus answers it, and this guy is seeing on the side how that plays out and says, okay, I see what's happening here. I see how he's answering these things, and I'm gonna approach him with a question, but in distinction from Matthew and Luke, this this question is not geared to test or to trap. It, it, it almost seems like he really wants to know what Jesus say. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, there's reasons why this person is approaching him, not to trick him, but just to, to engage him. And the question that he asks is this, of all the commandments, which is the most important one? Anybody know how many laws there are in the Old Testament? 613. And within the, the Pharisaical and rabbinic communities, one of the, the things that they like to do is to try to figure out which ones were the heaviest and which ones were the lightest. In other words, they wanted to kind of rank the laws to see which one carried the most weight. Not to say that the ones that were light weren't worth keeping, but just to say which ones were the most important. This was a discussion that was going on with a lot of people, and there's this one rabbinic tradition about a non-Jewish person who shows up and talks to the two big-time teachers of the law at the time, Shammai and Hillel. Shammai is like the uber-conservative guy that's really tight when it comes to interpreting Scripture. He's the guy that if there's a law here, he wants to put a fence around that law and a fence around that law and a fence around that law. So at the end of it, you're not only keeping this one centralized command, but he's added more and more and more commands to it. And Hillel is kind of like the hipster liberal who just kind of wants to make things lighter and easier. And this non-Jewish person said to these two guys, can you stand on one foot and recite to me the entire Torah? Now these guys knew Torah backwards and forwards. There was nothing that would have fooled them. And I wonder if Hillel, when he answers the question, picks up a leg and says, sure, because this is his answer. What you hate for yourself, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest, commentary. The rest, footnotes. If we can do this, we're golden. 
This sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's like the, the, the reverse of the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But what Hillel is saying is what you would not or what you would not want someone to do or what you would hate for yourself, don't do to your neighbor. And I wonder if he just kind of picks up his leg and says, yeah, I got you. And then spits out this, this little bit of teaching. But what the scribe is wanting to hear from Jesus is his response to this sort of question. And Jesus does, in fact, respond by saying the most important one is this. And this is really interesting because what Jesus does is here he dips into uh, what would have made absolute sense in this time. He starts reciting the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a text from Deuteronomy that people would say was something that people would go into the temple to recite at least once a day. And it's called the Shema because that first verb is pronounced Shema, hear, listen, obey. So Jesus begins by rooting himself in this Jewish culture by saying, you're trying to maybe put me in this box, but everything that you guys think, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now what Jesus does with that is a bit different because there's undertones of what he's saying is, I'm included in that. I'm part of that. When you're worshiping God, you're also worshiping me. But he continues and continues to cite from the Shema. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. As you can see, that bit is not included in Matthew or Luke, but the rest of it is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, what all of these New Testament authors are doing is they hit heart, soul, and mind. But in the Old Testament, it was love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. They were adapting and they were putting in this nuanced command of incorporate your mind into what we are celebrating. Now, we don't look at heart, soul, mind, and strength and try to separate them and try to figure out what they each included because really what it's talking about is with everything that you have, love and obey and commit yourself to following God. And then he continues. The second is this. So where the scribe asked for the most important or the, the weightiest or the heaviest commandment, what's the most important thing that we can be doing to obey God, Jesus says, well, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love him with everything that you have, but also love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment singular greater than these. Now, what's interesting with this is Mark is the only book that includes this bit where the, the response from the scribe demonstrates a willingness and an openness to engage Jesus in conversation, to hear where he's coming from, to um, not to trick him or to trap him. But after all the things that he has seen, he's seen Jesus interacting with the Sadducees in a positive way, and now he's responding to this question in a way that makes sense. Jesus was not unique in bringing these two commandments together, but he was um, fitting within his cultural context, but still he was, he was advancing this teaching. And the way that he responds the scribe responds is, is worth looking at. He says, well said, teacher. You are right in saying that God is one 
and there is no other but him. And now the scribe advances the teaching that Jesus had just given, the thing that people recite in the temple every day, the place that Jesus has put judgment upon, saying the temple is part of this system that is keeping people oppressed. There's no other God but him to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding. This is not what Jesus said, but this is what the scribe is hearing. Love him with all your heart, but also incorporate your mind and love him with your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. This stuff is more important than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. As 21st century Americans, we miss this. The scribe is an employee of the temple. And what he has just said is to love and to treat your neighbor with respect, to be an advocate of justice, to engage the life of the mind and the soul and the passions to following God, that is worth so much more than anything this temple can bring to you. In a sense, the scribe is beginning to talk himself out of a job. But he's seeing what Jesus is saying, and he's tapping into some Old Testament teaching. In 1 Samuel 15, it says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Now, this was not a teaching to say don't sacrifice anymore, especially in the Old Testament, but what it was doing is was very subversively and subtly saying there's something greater. If you were just to sacrifice animals and not love or not obey, then it's completely pointless. Hosea says something similar. For I desire, this is the Lord, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. When Jesus hears this response from the scribe, he says, uh, well, the text actually says, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he says to him, you're not far from the kingdom. And because of this interchange, no one dared to ask him any more questions. From Jesus overturning the tables in the temple, saying this place is gonna be a place of judgment, to saying it's gonna be destroyed, to the interactions that he has with the religious leaders of the day, to now this kind of sympathetic scribe who is engaging Jesus in this um, give and take, and now Jesus saying, you've answered wisely and you're not far away. I love how Mark does not tie this story up with a nice neat bow. We don't have any more information about what this scribe does, we just see him walk away and we hear in the back of our mind Jesus' pronouncement, you're not far away. So with Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the others. And really what they're trying to do is just get little kids to say, oh, that circle is smaller than these other three circles, or that bowl of porridge is smaller than these three big bowls of porridge. Do people still eat porridge? I'm not sure. Um, or like, this is a hat, and these three things are sunglasses, or all of these kids are wearing Batman suits, and this guy's wearing a Robin costume, which I guess works if you're a brother, but in other cases, anyway, um, 
they don't really want to make any sort of interpretive decisions about that. But here, we need to move beyond just pointing out the differences. We need to move beyond just pointing out the differences that this scribe is sympathetic and, and the interchange that he has with Jesus is not laced with animosity or contention. He's not trying to trick Jesus. He's actually trying to engage Jesus to hear what he needs to hear. And as he leaves, we're left with this openness. So there's some things in the book of Mark that I think that we can pull out and apply if we see it in light of its uh, comparisons to Matthew and Luke. Now this one's not so dissimilar from others, but what we see is Jesus' command to love God with everything that you have cannot be done in abstraction from loving the people in your lives. Yet, the way that we often live is we compartmentalize those two things so radically, and we've talked about this before. We hang out over here in our cars and listen, listen to our worship CDs and we read our devotionals and then we go to work and we're an awful person because the people around us are idiots. We compartmentalize those two things where we don't see the overlap in how we love God actually influences and impacts how it is that we love people. We also might not necessarily dip into this, but in the text, and this is where Luke is very different with this question and answer that's going on, and it's, I need to say this, it's also different because Jesus is not the one who's answering this question. It's actually the, the lawyer who comes to Jesus that's saying, repeating the, the Shema and love the Lord your God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the person that's answering Jesus's question, which is a, a, quite a difference, but it all sets up to, in Luke, this story about who is your neighbor. So if you're supposed to love God with everything that you've got, and you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, then who in fact is your neighbor? And what scholars have deduced, and this is pretty obvious, your neighbor is anyone who has a need. It's easy, in a sense, to love God, because you can do that in the quietness of your own heart. You can do that when nobody's looking. But when it's game time, and people around you are in need, the real legit love that you have for God will demonstrate itself to be real or a little bit wanting. Because it's not just how hard we sing those worship songs when nobody's around or even within a corporate worship setting with other Christians. It has to be mirrored and matched by the love that we have for the people in our lives that have needs, spiritual physical, financial, all these things of the people around us that, that are just wanting us to engage, and maybe we do and maybe we don't. You can't do the former. You can't, in my opinion, love God without loving people. So here's the question. How are you, how are we loving people? Can anybody see it? Can anybody feel it? Does anybody experience it? Or are we more concerned with managing our sinfulness? Are we concerned more with trying to be a better person? And that doesn't necessarily impact the people around us. The good bishop Tom Wright says, Jesus really did believe that through his kingdom mission, Israel's God would enable people to worship and love him and to love one another in a new way, the way promised in the prophets, the way that stemmed from renewed hearts and lives. 
we talk a lot about transformation. And I don't say this to guilt us. I say this as a healthy check of where we are in our spiritual journeys. Are we being transformed? Are we allowing ourselves to be open? Are we encouraging folks around us to see Jesus in a new way? I got called on this uh, a few days ago. Um, I was in conversation with someone and, and they said, you always talk about showing Jesus in a new way, but what do you mean by that? Perhaps for a handful of us, the way that we've seen Jesus played out is very authoritarian, it's very legalistic, it's very fake, it's very two-sided, it's very not healthy. And all I want us to do is begin to walk more honestly and openly and lovingly to demonstrate something that's not as oppressive as the relationship that you may have had growing up, that's not as oppressive as that conservative upbringing that you had that where you just felt suppressed and endangered perhaps. And this is like dramatic stuff, but there's people that go through this life that have Christians in their lives that abuse them and hurt them and harm them, and that's their image of Jesus that needs to be changed and transformed by us first saying, I'm sorry, and then walking with them to demonstrate something new and fresh and true. N.T. Wright continues by saying this, asking this question, would anyone looking at us, our churches, and we can get real specific here, would anyone looking at TRP, would anyone looking at the lives of the people that make up this community, the societies that claim in some sense to be Christian, would anyone looking at those people ever have guessed that the man we claim to follow saw his followers as being people like this? The way that we live, the decisions that we make, the way that we treat others, does that mirror and reflect Jesus? And I have to admit, at times, when I'm walking my dog around the development, you've heard this story, I am not mirroring Jesus in any tangible way. And sometimes I wonder what my neighbors would think because I, at times I believe they see maybe the worst side of me as just angry, jerky type person that doesn't demonstrate any sort of love or care or concern for the people around me. You could magnify that beyond just me walking the dog to the relationships that I have and, and the, the ways that I speak with people and, and the interactions and those sorts of things, but are we demonstrating and reflecting Jesus? Are we loving God with everything that we have so much so that it impacts and it influences the way that we love our neighbors? The second point that we can take away from this text in uh, Mark is a celebration of the life of the mind. There was a guy who teaches, he used to teach at Wheaton, now he teaches at Notre Dame, I believe. He wrote a book in 1994 called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Evangelical is this big word for people like us, people that believe ostensibly that Jesus is the son of God and that he died for our sins and that he rose again and we can follow him in that resurrection at some point in the future. The scandal, he says, he did not leave us waiting to know what it was because the very first sentence of the book was the scandal of the evangelical mind is there is no evangelical mind. Where he says that within culture, Christians have avoided 
thoughtfulness. But here in this text, we see Jesus as one who is celebrating engagement. The God who Jesus proclaims is one who grasps mind as well as heart and thus brings a new type of perception into the world. And I know that in this community, we've got people that have huge questions. We've got people that have nagging doubts and insecurities and uncertainties. And we have people that are on board, yes, but they still have those questions similar to after Jesus' resurrection, he stands before his followers and it says that some were worshiping and singing and some doubted. And I think that within our community, we have some of those people that are in it, yes, but they still look around, they still have big questions. And I think for some of you, you don't necessarily feel that that is part of the deal that you're not allowed to have those thoughts or those questions or those concerns. And what I want you to see is in this text, I believe that there's, there's a, an openness for you to be a part of this story. The third thing that we see is all is not lost. The scribe who is part of this crew of people who have been trying to overthrow Jesus and get him killed, it says that one of the scribes shows up. One of this big, large group of people that are united, perhaps, in the, in the sense of trying to get Jesus to be killed, but one shows up and begins to ask questions. And the way that Jesus engages him, he concludes by saying, you are not far from the kingdom. I think for many of you, perhaps, what you've heard is, oh no, you're, you're completely far away from the kingdom because you're not thinking this and you're not doing that, you're not wearing the right clothes, you're not doing the right things, and you're not thinking the right thoughts, it just, I don't know if you've heard this inclusion of Jesus where he says, you're close. Keep asking those good questions. Keep pursuing this whole thing. Keep in the midst of your doubts and your, your uncertainties, continue to try to wrap your brain around this. And hopefully in the midst of that, what you see is a God that loves you and cares for you just as you are, wanting you to be moved, yes, more like Jesus, but allowing space for you to be where you are now. In this story, we see some stuff, um, and we hear Jesus kind of laying down the gauntlet by saying, love God with everything you've got and love people around you. And then Jesus having that openness towards the end with the person that he's talking to by saying, you're not far from the kingdom. I don't know where you guys are. Some of you, I know that you are lockstep with Jesus and you have been walking and you are being transformed daily and you are being renewed in your mind and your spirit and you're engaging people in the correct ways and the neighbors around you, you're loving them well. Some of you, I think you might be on the fence. Some of you might have these big looming questions and what I would say is, you're close. Allow yourself to make those steps towards Jesus, loving him in a way that you haven't before as you are so that you can be transformed and renewed in your mind. My hope tonight is that in the midst of, of all of this stuff that we're encouraged, but we're also challenged not to be content to move closer to Christ, not just in this space, but as we leave in the way that we engage others, may that reflect who Jesus has called us to be, the conversations that we have and the way that we treat one another. May it reflect Jesus and provide that new and needed image of him to our community.